0: It was, I think, 1960 or 1961, down in South America, in the country of Argentina, along a road that wasn't traveled much, that the bus come to a stop. This man got off. He had just finished working for the day. As the bus pulled away out of the shrubs came two men. They grabbed him. A speeding car pulled up. The back door opened. They threw him in, pushed him down on the seat onto the lap of another man. The man on whose lap the seized person was laid was silently praying. Is it him? Is this the one? Did we get the right guy? Oh, Lord, I hope we did. After they verified some scars and marks, they found out it was him. They had seized and captured Adolf Eichmann, the orchestrator of the Holocaust, who played a huge role under Hitler to exterminate Jewish people. He somehow was managed to be taken out of the country and back to Israel, to Jerusalem, where he would stand trial for war crimes. Oh, a big international incident occurred. Argentina was furious when word of this got out that their sovereignty had been violated. And then a UN crisis was going on. But I think it was go to my ear, calmed things down and stretched some things a little bit, I guess, and said this really wasn't our people that did it, but it was. It was the Mossad the Israel's version of our CIA, that captured him and took him back, where he would stand trial in, for war crimes that he had committed. There was a political writer in New York. Her name was Hannah Arendt. She was a political writer, and she asked if she could go observe the trial and report on it and write on it. And she had written on such things as the Holocaust Holocaust, the final solution. The New Yorker granted her permission. So she made the trip. And on the way, she was excited to be there and do her job of reporting it, but she admitted she was a little scared. In fact, maybe she was terrified. I don't know if I want to be in the room, the same room as that monster. What will he be like? Will I be terrified when I see him? Well, there'll be horns growing out the side of his head. Now, Charles Manson hadn't came around yet, but her thoughts was, surely I'll recognize and see the horrible evil in this person. What kind of monster would she find? She wrote in her writings in 1963, she was absolutely shocked. She just saw an average, ordinary man. He did not appear like a monster at all. He just seemed to be ordinary, and she had trouble processing that. She was just shocked so much. In her writing, she coined a phrase, and she used it over and over again, called the banality of evil. Banal, pronounced like canal, banal means cliched or ordinary or commonplace. So she was writing and saying, it was just seems like out of the ordinary or the common, that this horrific, terrible evil had taken place. Now her readers totally misunderstood it. They were furious with her. They thought she was trying to communicate that it was common everyday place, the Holocaust and acts like that. That's not what she was saying. What she was saying was she was shocked to observe out of the ordinary evil things happen. You know what? The same thing's going on today. Right? You know what I'm talking about? It just was an ordinary day, commonplace, in an ordinary school, in just a regular ordinary sixth period, that an ordinary, seemed ordinary anyways, student walked in and wounded and killed some of his classmates. And the world is scrambling trying to find out what went wrong, what should we observe what How many days ago was it down in Virginia Beach? Same thing, an ordinary day, an ordinary man in an ordinary office for who knows what the reason was. Shot and killed several of his co-workers. I was off work sick that day when Timothy McVeigh blew up that building in Oklahoma City, killing many people, including children. But if you would have saw him the day before, you would have missed it. There was no clues. He just seemed like an ordinary person. How could it be so much evil comes from one person? A reporter, almost similar to what Aaron had said, went to interview Timothy McVeigh about a year after that happened and said, when I first walked in, the first thing he said to me, it looks kind of chilly out there today. Is it cool? Immediately shocked and thinking, he's talking like a normal person. And said about some things about upstate New York and so forth. He said, though, he didn't seem to have any remorse for what he did. In fact, he said he thought it was necessary because he had an agenda and something he was going on about against the government for. And though there were casualties that had, it was necessary. Back to Eichmann, Aaron found this to be really disturbing. He, too, showed no remorse. What he said was, listen, I just went to work like all of the rest of you. I went to work every day. I did what my boss told me. And if it was wrong, you got to blame my boss. I just did what I was told. Aaron observed that she didn't think he was this monster. She thought, well, she said he may be stupid. He may not have used his brain at all. But she found this evil act to come out of the common. Let me say this before we get to today's text. For our country and our community, where the evil seems to be on the rise, the further that we turn from God, the further that we let sin take over ourself, these acts will occur more frequently. Some of them, most of them, most of them will not be sensational. But nonetheless, there'll be smaller acts of evil, and even coming from Christians, rudeness, and anger, and on and on. Adam and Eve, uh, I always go back to that when I think of sin, and their sons. Let me just read you a little bit from Genesis 4 about Cain and Abel. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift. He did not accept Cain and his gift, and this made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Anger and sin was brewing up in his heart. He got a warning, by the way, so do we. We have something he didn't have. We have scripture, and we have church services, and we have Sunday school lessons, and we have Bible studies in a whole variety of ways to be warned from God about the sin in our life. But God went directly to Cain and said, Why do you look so angry? Why are you so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, and it's eager to control you. You must subdue it and be a master over it. In other words, there's some effort from all of us when God gives us a warning because he gives us free will to choose whether we're going to do what he wants to or not. There's some help for us in the text that we had today, have for today, and it's in the book of Micah. We're going to be in chapter 6, but before we get there, I just want to give you a little bit of overview of what's going on at this time. God is speaking to the rulers of the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah, and particular to the capital cities where the leaders are, Samaria and Jerusalem. And he says this through the prophet Micah. Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? God's accusing them right now. You ought to be the champions of justice. But you're the ones that are distorting justice. You're the ones that's taking advantage of people instead of the one that's protecting them, which is your responsibility. You who hate good and love evil, you become so warped in your thinking. You love the wrong thing, and you hate the wrong thing. Now, what I'm about to read is an hyperbole. They weren't really doing this, but this is... What it seemed like to God. It's as if you tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones. Who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones into pieces. Who chop them up like meat for a pan, like flesh for the pot. This is how badly their behavior was detesting God. And this is how much of an advantage they were taken of the people. And through the book of Micah and through all the prophets, God always seems to follow this pattern. He gives a warning. They had a chance to stop for what was going to happen, but then comes the destruction. Last week, about 100 years later, after today's lesson, I think, they captured. Israel was wiped off. Judah, people were taken into captivity. That's where we had Daniel's story from. But God always, he's so good, he always keeps his promises, and he promises them there'll be restoration. I'll bring a group of people back so I can keep my promise, which is from Abraham's line, would come and a king who will sit in the throne forever. And in fact, it's in Micah chapter 5, we're not going there today, that he mentions that Bethlehem will be the place that this king will be born. Now we'll jump over to chapter 6. And let me tell you what's going on here. It's kind of dramatic if we read it slow. I'm not used to reading the prophets slow, and therefore I get little out of them. I need to slow down. I learned that this week because I was forced to slow down to prepare. The Lord is bringing a lawsuit against his people. He's going to have Micah speak on his behalf at the court trial. So you'll get a flavor of that. And he's bringing a charge against them, telling, these are the grounds I'm suing you for Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up and plead my case before the mountains. I want all of creation to hear what I'm about to say, says the Lord. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel, and he has been for the three or four chapters preceding this. The Lord is bringing a lawsuit against them. And they better wake up or else the destruction will come. By the way, the destruction came. They didn't take his warning seriously. Here's the way I've always read this next verse. With the tone. This tone would be in my mind. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I spent an hour and a half on this verse this week. I was reading what everybody had to say and now I've changed my mind. That's not how the Lord, that's not His tone when He's saying this. He's saying this like this. Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. He's a broken hearted parent. You know, the memory is a good thing. We can think back on all the good times that we've had over our life. I've forgotten a lot of them, but I can remember some. Yesterday, my memory took me back because yesterday, if Sherry were still here, it would have been our anniversary. And so my mind takes me back to thinking about good things, being in Twala's backyard, getting married. But there's times I wished my memory wouldn't work. And such is the case when I got to this verse. I was going upstairs to my bedroom at the age of 15 when the state police car pulled out of the driveway. Sitting down below me in the kitchen down below was my aunt and uncle and my mother. Now, I had a register in my bedroom floor with no ductwork going to it. It just, if you opened it, it went down into the kitchen. And the only way my bedroom was heated if the warmth from the kitchen floated up to my bedroom. And I never liked it hot, and so that was just fine with me. In fact, I don't like it hot today either. Ah, <laughs> uh, The register was open, but boy, I wished it wasn't. I heard my mother say to my aunt and uncle, you know what I thought she was going to say? What the world's wrong with that kid? I ought to smash his head into the wall. She said, what did I do wrong? I just can't understand what I'm doing wrong. The pain and the agony that was in her voice, if I had any maturity at all, and I didn't, I'd have ran downstairs and told her, none of this was your fault. I knew what I had done. And I'm sorry. But I wasn't mature enough. She was agonizing and putting the blame on her. And it's with that same brokenheartedness that we hear the voice of God saying this. Now, there's a difference. My mom really didn't know what she did wrong and thought she did something wrong. God is saying this with the broken heart of a parent, but God never did anything wrong, never will do anything wrong. He's perfect in what He did. But He's appealing to the people with that same type of a spirit, just saying, you're you're breaking my heart here, folks. He would say the same thing to us today. If we know that we have sin in our life and don't get rid of it, he would say, you're breaking my heart. I know people paint a picture of this God with a lightning bolt ready to go anytime that you do something you shouldn't. But hes that's not the God he was, and Jesus has never portrayed that in the New Testament. He's a God that... He cries over his city of Jerusalem when he sees their sin. And he cries over and grieves over our sin too. In a very compassionate way, I think he says to them, I brought you up out of Egypt, didn't I? Didn't I redeem you from the land of slavery? I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember? Remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted? And what Balaam, son of Beor, answered? Do you remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal? That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Probably if I were a little bit more mature back in those days, somewhere later, I'd have got my senses together and went and said to my mom, what can I do to make this right? Do you want me to do dishes for the next year? Do you want me to sweep the house? Do you want me to go get another part-time job and help buy the groceries? What is it that I can do to make up for this? I never had that conversation, but I know what my mother would have said. I don't want anything to make up for it. I just want from now on for you to respect me, care about me, love me, and do the things that I raised you and taught you to do. That's what I would like you to do. But look how the people respond. They would have answered the same way I do. What can I do for you to make this go away? The people say, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? What can I do to make this right, God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Yeah, offerings were necessary. God required them in the Old Testament that they make sacrifices and offerings. But they're trying to... Uh, appease God by doing things or giving him things. Look at the progression of how it gets more exaggerated. Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams? Would that help? How about 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Ah, I'll give you my firstborn. I'll give you my firstborn to take care of me, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. What shall we do? Then comes one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. You don't need to fill in the notes. I filled it in for you today. That's uh, that's your, my little parting gift as you get a real, real preacher back next week. <laughs> he has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good. You're doing what's bad, but you've already been shown what the Lord really wants. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. This is what the Lord wants. It doesn't change when Jesus came. Jesus reinforced the same concept. This is what Jesus wants you to do. This is what Jesus did when he was here. To act justly. Act according to God's standards and love what's according to God's standards. You know something I see being bombarded today is God's standards in the Word of God. In fact, there is a church not too many blocks from here that have made this ruling. One of the ways we interpret scripture is whatever's on the mood of society for the day. Don't compromise God's standards. Don't compromise God's word. Also, to act justly, we must quest, it's a question of our identity. Who do we belong to? If we belong to Jesus, then that means we act like Jesus. How did Jesus act when he was here? He was fair and good to all. And people, what he wants of us in terms of justice is for those that can't defend, can't defend themselves, is to defend them. Is to care about God's standards and that God's fairness is given to all people. Even the people who are oppressed. We are to be a champion. Of those who are not treated fairly. We're to be people who love mercy. This is the remedy for sin. And and from it, evil that is manifested. Is to act justly and love mercy. And walk humbly with the Lord. Love mercy. Remember the mercy you received. All of us who are heaven bound are so grateful. That God is not going to deal with us the way we should have been dealt with. Aren't we? Anybody agree with me? Say amen. We all deserve a punishment that's unbearable. But God had mercy and is not going to make us pay that punishment. Why? It's already been paid for. His son came and died for us. And anybody that puts their faith and trust in Jesus receives that mercy. We are to be people who enjoy being like the Lord. Giving mercy to whoever we can. What does that look like, to give mercy? It means when somebody hurts you, somebody does something and crushes your ego, crushes your heart, hurts you. Maybe you have a right to bestow some type of judgment on them or reaction. Treat them better than they deserve. Then you get the delight of being like Jesus. Jesus. Don't treat them the way you think they deserve. Treat them the way you think Jesus would treat them. Treat them like the way Jesus treated you. The third thing we're taught today is to walk humbly with the Lord. Humbly, humble means take the importance off of yourself and put it on God. God and his ways are much more important than the things in my heart and my mind, my desires and so forth. Humility humbly has this connotation of being measured, where we discern. We have to, now see, here's the problem that Aaron thought Eichmann didn't do. He never really searched his mind and his heart. It was just like he was brainless. People who are humble use their mind to try to discern, to try to look inside, circumspect. In other words, they're self-reflective. And here's the danger, everybody. If we're not all self-reflective and we don't find sin that's in our heart, it can manifest itself in evil. Now, I don't expect evil in the terms of blown up buildings and school shootings and so forth. But neither did that church down in Texas or people somewhere else think from among themselves evil could flourish like that. It can go and occur anywhere where there's unchecked sin. Compare our actions and our attitudes to God's standards. Why? Because the goal is to become a Christian. What you're signing up for is, I trust that you paid for my sins and I want to be like you. Christian, Christ-like. That's what Christian means. To be like Christ. To be a little Christ. Jesus, you're the standard and I want you to be the Lord of my life and I give you my life. What does that mean I give him my life? To be like him, to let him direct my life and guide me and direct me. Gignalliott concluded, now listen to this, this was a conclusion a writer wrote about that. Herein lies the horror. Eichmann loved his wife. He was a good father. He was not a monster, he was banal, unremarkable and commonplace. How could the one who orchestrated humanity's one of humanity's grossest crimes, that writer went on to say, banality and ambition kept him from being reflective, inspecting himself and inspecting his heart. For goodness sakes, if you don't get anything else out of the sermon today, it ought to be this. We need to continually inspect our heart and our mind, checking to see how it measures up with God's standards and his attitudes. Now listen, I'm seeing a lot of people who don't think anymore. This is not some abstract thing, and I'm not going to get political on you, and I'm not going to get on one side or the other, but I want to tell you what I'm observing today. People were so against the current president that anything he says... They're against, without any thought to whether it's good or not. And the people that are for him are so set that the other side is always wrong. They won't think for themselves. You need to read the scripture, people. I need to read the scripture, and we do. And we need to think and start thinking for ourselves and processing things. So evil doesn't occur. I don't take other people's opinion and assume everybody's always going to be right. You see, that's assuming that out of the ordinary evil can't come, and that's not true. It's out of the ordinary commonplace that it can occur. I want you to keep in mind that it was common people going to common everyday churches in their common everyday life that enslaved millions of people in this country and treated them horribly. It was people common people in their everyday common life that killed and are killing millions of unborn children. And in both cases, justifying why that was the right thing to do. Keep in mind, it was common people in their common everyday life that lets millions of people go hungry and thirsty. We don't have to look too far to find evil. It's right here among us. And the cause of it, I don't care. You can sit down. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in that situation. Do you think the next day at the dinner table after Abel was murdered, do you think the conversation went something like this? Well, I don't know, Eve. We should have saw that coming. That he, Cain started having those crazy eyes. Or did they just say, where did this come from? It come, came from the sin inside of his heart. He didn't heed the warning. He didn't eradicate the sin, and it manifested itself into evil. Common people in common everyday life can not rise to the occasion and rescue those who need help themselves. So let me conclude by asking you a question today. Does God want us to get together to worship him? Well, sure he does. Does he want us, when we take up offerings and so forth, does he want us to give generously to him in our offerings and of our time and energy? Well, sure. Those are good things. Does he want us to read our Bible? Yeah. And pray and do the other things of Christian discipline. But that's not the important thing. That's not what God wants the most. God wants your heart. He wants you to love him. That's why we were created we were created. He wanted people he could love. He gave us the ability to, to decide whether we would love him or not. And he wants us to choose, yes, I want to love God. And I want to receive this free gift he's given, offering everybody. The free gift is his son, crucified on the cross, to pay for everyone's sin. But that's a choice we have to make. We have to look inside and say, yes, I need a Savior. I've got sin in my life. I need help. I need Jesus. And we have to come to that conclusion. So I asked myself, wrapping up this lesson, what does my Lord and Savior want for me? I've been a Christian for a while now, but I'm still asking that question. What does he want for me? Well, he wants me to trust him. I've learned that in my Christian walk. He wants me to count on him and trust him and take him at every promise that he's made me. He wants me to act justly. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with him. Here's a promise that I'm, I'm taking from scripture and we can count on it. If you humble yourself before the Lord, he'll lift you up higher and higher. Higher. My plea to all of us today is when we humble ourselves before the Lord, let's sing about that, Lauren.